0: Welcome to this patient information program on adjuvant systemic therapy of lung cancer. This is medical oncologist, Dr. Neil Love. Our education group in Miami has been producing interview programs on cancer treatment for more than 20 years. On this program, we visit with two medical oncologists and a nurse practitioner specializing in lung cancer research and treatment, and four patients who receive systemic treatment in addition to surgery for their early-stage disease. We've asked these people the questions we think patients and families might pose and hope you'll take what's useful and leave the rest behind. To begin, oncologist Dr. Heather Wakeley comments on the background for the development of this important and commonly used treatment strategy.
1: We've known for many years that giving additional treatment after surgery for breast cancer and colon cancer can significantly improve cure rates. And for lung cancer, we didn't really have that data until about the last five years or so. The risk with lung cancer and most other cancers that there could be small tumor cells that have escaped. Most of them before the surgery happened. Theoretically, there could have been a few even at the time of surgery. And what we would hope to do is to go after those escaped tumor cells. Well,
0: what about just waiting until they become a problem?
1: Once they do come back, they're more likely to show up in other parts of the body. And once cancer has shown up in other parts of the body, though we can still treat, give people time, we don't know how to cure at least with the treatments we have today. And so what we'd like to do is prevent the cancer from coming back at all. So
0: can you actually figure out who it is that's going to have the cancer come back?
1: We have some things that can give us a hint. We know that if the cancer has spread to lymph nodes, it's more likely to come back. But other than that, we don't have a lot of data. People have been doing a lot of research trying to identify particular proteins that the tumor might express that indicate that it's more or less likely to come back. But that's all still very experimental. And so at this point, the best that we have are looking at how many lymph nodes were involved. If the tumor looked particularly aggressive under the microscope, that can give us a hint. If it looked like it was invading into blood vessels, that might give us a hint.
0: So you look at all these things and you come up with kind of what, a percentage of the chance that you think it might come back? Pretty much, so if you have a situation where, let's say, there's a 40% chance that it might come back, it also means there's a 60% chance the person's cured.
1: Exactly. And when I'm talking to a patient, we highlight that and talk about the fact that there's a more than likely chance that they've already been cured, that there's a percentage of people, even if we give them treatment, who will not be cured. And so we're, at this point, probably impacting 5 to 10% of people. And I usually go through the analogy of there are 100 people who get treated with adjuvant chemotherapy, chemotherapy after surgery, and 100 people that don't. In the group that got the chemotherapy, there'll be five to 10 more of them alive at five years versus in the group that did not get the treatment. And some people look at that and decide that's enough. You know, I'm willing to go through three months of treatment or a year on a trial to be one of those five to 10 people. And other people say, well, if it's not a 20% difference, I'm not going to do it. And so I try to bring it into that, that discussion of percentage cure at five years. I think that's a concept that people are able to understand. I think most people have done at least a little bit of gambling and can understand odds when we're talking about percentage rates.
0: So what's sort of the range of the risk without any treatment that is involved with these patients? What's the low and high end?
1: Well, for patients who have the mediastinal nodes involved, the stage 3 patients, the chance of the cancer coming back with surgery alone is going to be 70%, maybe even higher.
0: And when you say mediastinum, that's sort of in the middle of the chest.
1: Exactly. So the lymph nodes that have spread to the center, the mediastinum, that central part. For patients who have lymph nodes that are in the lung themselves, we call those the N1 nodes. Those would be patients we would call stage 2 their chance of having the cancer come back is somewhere between 40 and 50 percent. And if there are no lymph nodes at all, the chance of the cancer coming back is still as high as 30, maybe even 40 percent. And so, this is a very dangerous disease for that reason because it does tend to come back even when the surgeon's gotten everything.
0: So you're looking at people who have a risk maybe in the range of 30 to 70% depending upon a lot of factors they need to ask their doctor about to really find out about them. Right. And then decreasing it but not bringing it down to zero. Correct. The word adjuvant is often used for this. Why do they use that word?
1: It's a term we use for treatment after the surgery. So I think post-operative chemotherapy is probably a better term. It's more understandable.
0: But I guess adjuvant implies adding something on, and I guess it's the surgery that traditionally this is being added on to. Now, we're focusing in our conversation here today about so-called non-small cell lung cancer, but there also is a small cell cancer. Can you talk about the frequency of the two and what the difference is?
1: Sure. So small cell lung cancer looks different under the microscope, and the cells are small, which is how it got the name small cell, and everything else was lumped together as non-small cell The small cell cancers tend to be more aggressive. We don't usually find them when they are just sitting out in the lung and haven't started spreading. Usually we find them once they're already gone into the lymph nodes, particularly the lymph nodes centrally, and sometimes have spread more widely. Small cell used to be about 20% of all lung cancer. It's dropped down to maybe 10 to 15%. It's more strongly associated with smoking than non-small cell, and we think some of that change is related to changes in smoking patterns that we've seen, particularly in the United States. We treat small cell lung cancer always with chemotherapy. The chance of it responding to chemotherapy is much higher than the chance of non-small cell responding to chemotherapy. And when it's confined to just the chest, we can give radiation and chemotherapy together, And cure a percentage of patients that way. Surgery is very, very rarely used for small cell just because it's very rarely found when it's a single nodule in the lung, a mass in the lung that hasn't spread extensively.
0: Now, within the so-called non-small cell, which is the majority, what, about 80% or more, I guess, of all lung cancer, what types within that exist and what are the differences?
1: So there are three major types. There are the adenocarcinomas are the most common. The squamous cell carcinomas are the second most common. Then we have large cell, and then there's a bunch of others. And we kind of just call those non-small cell, not otherwise specified. The adenocarcinoma is increasing in its percentage of all lung cancer. We don't really know why. There are theories that it has to do with changes in how cigarettes were made, but that's also the type of cancer that we see in the non smokers. And again, non smokers represent probably 20% of women who get lung cancer and maybe 10% of men. And so that's a significant number of patients with this disease. So we don't understand all the factors that lead to the development of lung cancer in those patients, but that's one of the differences. Squamous cell tends to occur in patients with a smoking history. It tends to be more centrally located. If it is removed before it has spread to lymph nodes, the cure rates are a little bit higher. The adenocarcinomas do tend to start spreading when they're a little bit smaller, but it's not a perfect correlation there. And then the large cells are much less common. They tend to be a little bit more aggressive. There are also differences in how they respond to certain treatments, and most of that data comes from the patients where the cancer is already spread, where it's metastatic or advanced stage. And in those groups, some of the newer chemotherapy drugs, in particular pemetrexid, seems to work best in the adenocarcinomas in the large cells. Some of the newer targeted drugs, such as the epidermal growth factor receptor drugs like erlotinib, also called tarceva, and gefitinib, also called Erissa those might work a little bit better in the adenocarcinoma type, though they do also work in the squamous. And in the metastatic disease, some of our other quote-unquote targeted drugs might be a little bit more toxic, such as the ones targeting blood vessel formation. We don't think that's the same, though, if the cancer's already been removed, if there's no large tumor.
0: And we'll get into that. Mm -hmm. But Essentially, what we're talking about, though, is somebody who comes to see you as a medical oncologist, what, maybe a month or so after having had a chest surgery?
1: Usually. And a lot of them I will have seen before their surgery as part of our multidisciplinary tumor board.
0: Right. So you might even see them earlier. So, but what they're looking at as they recover from this surgery is the consideration of receiving chemotherapy for, and we'll talk about the types, but for a short period of time, about how long in general?
1: Generally, it's about three months of treatment. Most of the regimens are once every three weeks. Some of them have an additional treatment on the day eight or week two, but it's almost all done as an outpatient. So it's pretty much one full day and maybe a few extra days getting some fluids and other medications to control some of the side effects and about three total months.
0: So we'll talk about the specifics, but then you're looking at a few months then of receiving chemotherapy to reduce their risk of having the cancer come back and being a real problem. Before we get into more specifics, maybe we can just take a second and talk a little bit about what you've observed and how people respond personally to this situation. Do they go out and try to get information? Do they ask you a lot of questions? What are the moods they're going through? How do they feel physically? What's going on around that time?
1: So obviously, a lot of variability in that. After about a month, most people are still having some discomfort from their surgery, but mostly getting back towards their normal lives. For many of them, they'd really like to just get the whole cancer thought behind them, and that can be an issue as you're thinking about ongoing treatment. It's hard to continue thinking about therapy when you understand that, you know, everything that was visible is gone. And so you want to believe that it's really not there anymore. So that certainly plays a role, and a lot of people are anxious to get back to their lives, to get back to work and taking care of families and that sort of thing. And so the idea of an additional three months or longer of therapy can really have an impact there as people are thinking about their recovery. As I mentioned before, when I talk with them about what we can do to improve those cure rates, the only thing that we know has an impact is chemotherapy, three months of chemotherapy. And it's not easy chemotherapy. With our newer anti-nausea medications and with adequate hydration, most people can get through it. But it's challenging. And so we talk about sort of the sacrifice of three months of time that we know we're going to delay recovery a little bit by doing that, but with the flip side being this improvement in cure, which could be as high as 10%, depending on the stage of disease that the patient has. And so that's how we put it in context. And people's responses are quite variable. I always try to frame it again in that idea of percentage of change of cure. And when this has been studied in the breast cancer literature, they have found a change. If it's less than 5%, most people don't want to go after it. If it's more than 10%, the vast majority do. And so with lung cancer, we're somewhere in that 5 to 10% range where there's a lot of variation in how people perceive their risk and perceive what they're willing to do to improve those odds.
0: So what you're saying is you could say to somebody, Well, your chance of having a recurrence and a real problem, let's say, is 35%. If you take this three months of chemo, maybe that'll come down to 30% or a little bit lower. But what that means is that there's a 5% chance or 1 in 20 chance that by taking the chemo, you're going to actually avoid having a cancer recurrence.
1: Right. Actually, I tend to flip things the other way when I'm talking to patients. So I tend to start off with your chance of being cured right now is 60%. And if we give you this chemotherapy, we could improve that to 65, maybe as high as 70 percent. You will be going through three months of treatment to get that. A lot of it's, though, about a year from now. Are you going to be looking over your shoulder and wondering if there's anything more I could have done? I think that's a lot of it because some people are able to walk away and not be constantly wondering, what have I done? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? And for many people, it's that idea of this nagging doubt that's actually even a bigger player than the numbers themselves. Obviously, we're hoping that we could make an impact with the chemotherapy, but I try not to ever answer a question when patients ask me, well, what would you do? Because I'm looking at it from the context of me and having young kids, and we know that that plays a role. And I don't know what it's like to be 70 years old and having some other health issues and trying to make that decision. And so I try to frame things and have people look at it in the context of themselves and what kind of risk they're usually willing to take and how comfortable they are moving forward, knowing that maybe I could have done a little bit more, but it would have involved some sacrifices.
0: Right, and maybe experienced a complication of chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. which we'll talk about too. But again, just to clarify a little more in terms of what you mean by these numbers, and I think it's also maybe important to say that Patients don't need to hear these numbers if they don't want. They can turn to the doc and say, You know, I don't want to hear the details, just give me your opinion. Right. But a lot of people do want to know about these. Mm-hmm. And I think what you mean by, and what you were saying about, well, suppose it was a less benefit would be if going from a cure rate of 65% instead of going to 70 or 75%, it went from 65 to 67, mm-hmm. so really only there was a 2% difference, then maybe that would you know, appeared it would appear differently than somebody who knows there's a ten percent chance or one in ten chance. So it's kind of a tricky background that people can or Mm -hmm. can get involved with. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about the kinds of chemo that are used and what you tell people to expect in terms of how it's gonna impact their lives.
1: Right. Before I wanted to get back a little bit though to the point you were just making I always ask people if they want to know the information. I found that the vast majority do want to know when it's given to them as percentages. I think it's misleading to tell people a median or an average survival time. Right. But most people do seem to want to hear percentages because, again, everyone's going to look at that percentage a little bit differently, glass half full, glass half empty, depending on the person. And there are some who don't want to know. But for most people, I think it's important to have some sense of that range of knowing that 5 to 10% and where does it fit. And also to make sure we're emphasizing that these are absolute differences.
0: Right. And we've actually surveyed medical oncologists and we've actually surveyed patients, not just lung cancer, but also colon and breast cancer. And what we're seeing is in the last few years the offering of these types of numbers is really becoming routine and as you say in fact most people want to know the numbers and seem like they when we've asked them say well we think we understand it so mm-hmm. It seems a little tricky, but I think if people take their time, they can understand it and, you know, really make a better decision. But, of course, one of the things about that is, well, what's the downside? Right. And maybe you can kind of paint a picture, because there are a bunch of different regimens that are used or chemotherapy combinations, so it's not like everybody uses the same thing. Right. But maybe you kind of paint a broad picture about generally what people experience.
1: So with lung cancer therapy, almost always we use a combination of two drugs when we're talking about this adjuvant or after-surgery chemotherapy. One of the drugs is almost always a drug called cisplatin, and cisplatin is a chemotherapy drug that's been around for a long time. When we first started using it, it was a very difficult drug to get because it causes a lot of nausea and vomiting and can affect kidneys and do other bad things, but over the years we've learned a lot about how to give it safely. And so we now give it with a lot of intravenous fluids, fluid going in through the vein to make sure that we protect the kidneys. And one of the great things about oncology that I've been able to witness over the last five to 10 years is improvements in how we can control nausea and vomiting so that people really don't have to suffer with those symptoms anymore for the most part. There are exceptions where people have a hard time, but by using a cocktail of three or four different types of anti-nausea medications, most of my patients are able to continue to lead their lives without having the nausea be a major problem, even with the treatment.
0: Can people work?
1: Many of them do. I mean, people do need to take off, obviously, the day of treatment, a few days after. Many people decide they're not quite feeling up to working. I mean, they've just been through a big surgery. The chemotherapy is draining fatigue which can build up over those three months of therapy, is a big issue. Some people find that not working gives them more time to worry about their cancer, and they don't like that. So I really leave it up to the individual. And my patients who want to keep working, most of them are able to keep working. And patients who feel like they really need the time off, I think that some people really do need that extra space just to be able to rest and focus on their healing.
0: When people ask you, how long will it be before I feel like my old self again? Of course, they're not just recovering from the chemo, but also the surgery. What do you generally observe?
1: Well, the chemotherapy itself takes about three months, as we've talked about before. And going through the side effects, again, we can manage it with the newer treatments, but it it does take a toll. People are fatigued. That fatigue persists for another probably one or two months and so I usually tell people that by six months or so from the start of their chemotherapy, the chemotherapy effects will be gone. And that also tends to coincide with when most of the surgery effects are going to be getting better.
0: And again, there are variations. You mentioned cisplatin. There's also carboplatin right. that some people use, although I think most of the researchers go for the cisplatin. Mm-hmm. What about other problems with cisplatin, including the possibility of hearing
1: loss? So the cisplatin does affect nerves throughout the body. The effects that we see predominantly are the numbness and tingling and even pain in the hands and feet, which can be debilitating. It can also affect the nerves that are important for hearing. And so we do need to monitor patients closely for hearing loss. And I actually won't give cisplatin for a patient who already has hearing loss, particularly people who are already requiring hearing aid. What we have instead, though, is the carboplatin drug, which is a very close relative of cisplatin, does not affect the nerves in the same way. Potentially slightly less potent, which is why we usually tend to prefer the cisplatin. But I have no problem substituting carboplatin for cisplatin in patients who have some underlying hearing loss or are not going to be able to handle the large volumes of fluid we have to give to protect the kidneys. Cisplatin is particularly hard on the kidneys.
0: There are different drugs that can be combined with it. Can you kind of go through the common drugs that are combined with the cisplatin and what kinds of problems they introduce?
1: Sure. So the one that's been studied the most is called veneralbine, and that is a drug that's given once a week. So it's given with the cisplatin and then one week later. That medication by itself doesn't cause a lot of nausea. It can affect the nerves, so cause numbness and tingling in the hands and feet, potential pain. It can affect the blood counts, just like the cisplatin, like most chemotherapies. And that means that the white blood cell counts would be low, putting people at risk for infection. The red blood cells can get low, causing people to be anemic, more tired. And also the platelets, which are the cells that help our blood clot, those also can be affected by the vinirelbine as well as pretty much any of the chemotherapy drugs. But that combination, the cisplatin and the vinorelbine, is the one that has been studied the most where we can really, with confidence, say, we know if we give you this regimen that your benefit's going to be in that 5 to 10% range. However, many, many other combinations have been studied with metastatic or advanced stage lung cancer, and we know that those are at least as good as the cisplatin and vinirelbine combination with different side effects. And so that's why most investigators, most physicians feel comfortable making the substitutions. And so the drugs that are sometimes substituted, there's one called docetaxol or taxotere. That has the advantage of just being given once every three weeks. It, in some studies, was shown to be a little bit more active in metastatic disease than the vinorelbine. It is much harder on blood counts. It also can affect the nerve system with a numbness and tingling, and it does cause significant hair loss, and so that's an issue for a lot of patients. Another drug is called gemcitabine. That one, like the vinorelbine, is given in addition to, with the cisplatin, an additional one-week-later dose. That one does not cause the hair loss. It is very hard on the blood counts, doesn't affect the nerves with a numbness and tingling. And so when I'm talking with a patient, we go through all of those variations and side effects. The last one that's being more commonly used now with the cisplatin is called pemetrexid, which is a newer drug. That one has the advantage of also not causing the hair loss. It's not as hard on nerves and actually is not as hard on the blood count. So it's overall a little bit better tolerated than some of the other medications. But it doesn't seem to work very well in the squamous cell type of non-small cell lung cancer, at least in the advanced stage disease. And so I think most of us would not recommend it for patients with that type, with the squamous cell type.
0: What about docetaxel? I know one of the potential issues there are problems with their nails. What happens with that?
1: Patients can get discoloration of the nails. It's something that is more cosmetic and it grows out over time. And so I tend not to emphasize that too much. They end up with a few stripes sometimes in the nails.
0: What about fluid retention? Do you ever see that?
1: We do rarely. Rarely. And so patients do need to take steroid medication. That's something I should emphasize. With the cisplatin, we usually will give steroids for several days thereafter to help with the nausea, but taking four days of steroids every three weeks can have effects, particularly in patients who are diabetic, and the cisplatin is a concern in those patients also with the kidney toxicity. Docetaxel does require steroids as well, as does pemetrexid, to reduce some of the other side effects in the case of pemetrexid rash with all fluid retention.
0: And I guess in terms of the diabetes, the issue there is that the steroids can make the sugar or the glucose more difficult to control. Correct. Any other issues with the steroids? I know some people get kind of hyper. They have trouble sleeping and stuff. What have you seen with that?
1: Absolutely, that can be an issue. And so when we're giving people steroids, we warn them that they might have trouble sleeping that they might have a lot of energy, and conversely, once they stop, the steroids could really crash. And so with some people, we do have to prolong the time that they're on it up to about a week or so.
0: What are the chances that someone could actually die as a result of receiving the chemotherapy?
1: So in the studies that have been done with it, it's less than half of a percent. It is something we do talk about. The biggest risk is in patients when their blood counts drop, they are at risk for infection, And it can be a very, very serious infection. I always warn my patients getting chemotherapy that if they have any hint of a fever, they need to call right away, even if it's 2 in the morning, and usually come in for evaluation, not to take a Tylenol and see how they're doing in the morning, because very rarely that can be fatal. The biggest risk is that we all have bacteria throughout our body, particularly in our intestinal tract. And when the blood counts drop, some people are more susceptible to having those bacteria get out of the gastrointestinal tract and into the bloodstream and cause a life-threatening infection. And so that is the major risk from chemotherapy that can be fatal. However, it's very rare as long as people heed the warnings and hear the warning clearly that if they get a fever, it is an emergency when they're having chemotherapy and they need to get to an emergency room and get started on antibiotics right away.
0: And when you say that people should call, if they have even a hint of a fever. I mean, one degree, two degrees. If they have chills, I guess you get more concern.
1: Right. If they're shaking chills, very serious concern. And number-wise, we go with 100.5 or 38 Celsius. That's what I tell my patients anyways, to have a thermometer and actually check.
0: What are the other things that you ask patients to tell you about or call you about, if any?
1: We give patients nausea medications to have at home, but I tell them if they're not working, if they're still having vomiting, they need to let us know right away because we can then bring them in, give them fluids by vein, give them medications by vein and keep them from getting really dehydrated. The other risk, of course, is dehydration from diarrhea, not common, but can occasionally happen. And the flip side, constipation is also a risk with some of the medications. And so I ask people to just stay on top of it, not call us when it's been a problem for five days, call us when it's been a problem for one. Anything that's just above and beyond what they would expect. I like to have a close communication, as I'm sure all oncologists do with their patients who are starting treatment with chemotherapy.
0: You mentioned hair loss before. Do all these treatments cause hair loss? Or I mean, you mentioned some of the drugs that, uh, mm-hmm. but do you see patients go through who have no hair loss at all?
1: Almost all patients have some thinning, but the platinum drugs by themselves don't tend to do that. So cisplatin or carboplatin alone don't. When you combine it with gemcitabine or pemetrexid, most patients have some thinning, but no noticeable hair loss.
0: And I guess we should say that if people do experience hair thinning or hair loss, that the hair usually regrows once the chemo stops?
1: Almost always.
0: How long does it take to grow back usually?
1: Uh, It's months. You know, hair doesn't tend to grow too quickly. So by six months or so, so three months after the last chemotherapy, most people have growth that they can clearly tell is coming back in. Most people are still choosing alternative head coverings at that point. But by about Six months after the completion of chemotherapy, certainly by nine months, most people don't require that any longer.
0: Now, these drugs are given intravenously, and I know a lot of patients get a so-called port. Can you explain what that is and when you use it?
1: Sure. There's a lot of variability in that, but what it is is a device that is put in by a surgeon that has a reservoir where a needle can be put into that reservoir, which is under the skin and then it's put directly into a vein, a large vein. And so what it is is patients just have a bump under the skin, but it's a bump that if a needle is put in it, the proper kind of needle, the nurses are able to pull blood out and put the medications in without having to hunt around for a vein. And then that access device can be taken out after the completion of chemotherapy. I found, though, that for most patients, only requiring four months of treatment, so it's at most eight different times that they're coming in, Most of them don't require that when we're talking about this kind of therapy. Most of them are able to get by with just having an IV started each time or something called a PIC, a peripherally inserted central catheter. And those are very, very long catheters. They're basically IV tubes, but they're started in the elbow region. And then it's very long, tunneled into one of the bigger blood vessels. It's something done as an outpatient. And it means that the patients have a basically a tube sticking out of their arm for that three-month period. And you have to be careful when you're swimming or taking a shower, but pretty easy to take care of for almost everybody. And then it's just taken out, doesn't leave any scars or any significant problems. And so there are things that we're able to do for patients with difficulty with IVs. When we're talking about some of the experimental regimens where you need a full year of treatment, that can become more of an issue. But I find that for my patients with metastatic lung cancer where we're routinely giving care for a year or up to two, many of them don't need those access devices, especially if they're younger.
0: So one of the important options for a patient in this situation as an alternative to receiving chemotherapy, as you've described, is to participate in a clinical research trial. And you're the head of really one of the most important, probably the biggest trial right now that people are looking to in this situation. Can you explain in general what the concept is of doing research in this situation? What are the trials out there, including yours, that patients might participate in?
1: So the reason that we need to do more research is we're still only able to offer patients a 5 to 10% benefit from chemotherapy. I usually point out that we wouldn't know that giving chemotherapy gives us a 5 to 10% benefit unless earlier patients had gone on trials, the trials that looked at either no treatment or giving chemotherapy. And because there were patients willing to go on the studies, we now know that we can offer other patients the benefit of chemotherapy. So we need to do the trials to move forward. We're no longer doing any studies that are just giving chemotherapy to people, yes or no. There are some trials that are trying to direct the chemotherapy where they look at proteins that are in the tumor itself or differences between people.
0: Now, when you say that somebody's going to be in a clinical research trial, though, because I think when people think about it, they think about they're going to get some kind of experimental medicine and... Just a few people might receive it, whereas these trials that you're talking about are actually, they're trying to get thousands of people to participate.
1: Right. So I should clarify more. The older chemotherapy trials were close to 1,000 patients. One of the trials was almost 2,000 patients. And in those studies, after surgery, people either went on to get chemotherapy or not to.
0: So it was random whether they got the chemo or not. Right. So they went into the study, and the idea in that situation was kind of like a coin flip determining whether they get chemo or not, and then see if the ones who got the chemo did better.
1: Right, exactly. And the trials that we're looking at now are looking at adding other medications. So the study that we're doing, everybody who goes on the trial gets chemotherapy. Half of the people, and this is picked at random, basically a coin flip, as you said, in addition to standard chemotherapy, will also get another drug called Bevacizumab, which is also given by vein, once every three weeks, and is what we call an anti-angiogenesis drug—a drug that is affecting blood vessel formation. And this is a drug that we know can add to chemotherapy for patients where the cancer's already spread. Doesn't cure in that situation, but can prolong time before the disease grows and help some people live longer. And so we're looking at giving that drug in addition to chemotherapy for patients where the cancer's already been removed, hoping that that might improve cure rates. That's one of the trials.
0: What is known about bevacizumab or Avastin up to this point? Has it ever been used in this kind of a situation adjuvantly?
1: It's being studied in colon cancer and in breast cancer. And just this past weekend, we heard some of the first results, which was from a colon cancer trial.
0: We don't know for sure whether it's going to help in colon cancer, and we certainly don't know for sure whether it's going to help in lung cancer, but the hope is that it might.
1: Right, and that's why we're continuing with the study. Some of the other studies that are going on, there's one looking at a pill drug called erlotinib or tarceva. That is another drug we know works in patients with metastatic lung cancer. And in this trial, patients going on can either have or not received chemotherapy beforehand. And at the time they go on the study, they either go ahead and get this erlotinib pill for two years or they get a placebo pill for two years. Another study is a vaccine trial looking at a protein called MAGE A3, and that's a protein that's only in cancer cells. It's not in any normal cells, but it's not in an all lung cancer. It's in less than half. And so with this study, patients' tumors are tested to see if they have that protein, and if they do, they are then randomized, meaning coin flip, and half of them get injections of the vaccine, and half of them get a placebo injection. So those are the three largest, looking at newer treatments. And then there are also trials that are ongoing trying to Better customize, better personalize the chemotherapy itself, and most of those are happening in Europe, one in the US. In those trials, half the patients just get chemotherapy, no direction to it, just like we would normally. and the other half, they look for, again, at certain proteins on the cells to see if they can better select the particular chemotherapy.
0: And the study that you're doing looking at bevacizumab, I want to focus on a little more in mm-hmm. terms of what the issues there are, but that's being conducted by what's considered a cooperative research group. In this case, it's the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Research Group of which you're a part of. Can you explain what ECOG is and what a cooperative group is and how it works?
1: Yeah, the cooperative group system is funded by the National Cancer Institute There are four major cooperative groups within the United States. The Eastern Cooperative Group is one. Now, I'm at Stanford, so it's not all Eastern, but that was the name given to it. And it's predominantly East Coast institutions. And how it works is that the member institutions all work together to enroll patients onto these larger trials. And the member investigators take turns as to... One person leads one trial, another person leads another. We all work together to make sure we're offering the best possible trials to our patients with this sort of cooperative agreement. The other cooperative groups, there's the Southwest Oncology Group, which tends to be geographically located in the Southwest, but a big range. And then the Cancer and Leukemia Group B is scattered throughout the country. And then there's a more focused group, the North Central, which is centered around the Mayo Institute in Rochester.
0: So can any physician, for example, in the United States put a patient onto this study or they have to actually be a member of ECOG?
1: They don't need to be. There is a central group called the CTSU and what they do is pool everybody who's in all of the cooperative groups. So even though this is an ECOG-led trial, An institution that's part of the CLGB can join the study, and people who aren't affiliated can also join through the CTSU mechanism. And so it is open throughout this country, and actually the National Cancer Institute of Canada Clinical Trials Group has also joined, so it's throughout North America.
0: What do we know about Bevacizumab or Avastin? It hasn't really been used in the adjuvant situation in lung cancer and I think probably shouldn't be used until we find out whether it's going to work. And I think people aren't using it in that situation, but it has been used a lot in people with more advanced disease where the cancers come back or maybe they start out with cancer already in different locations. What do we know about how it works, how effective it is, and what are the downsides?
1: Well, the most striking thing when it's given with chemotherapy is that the chances of the cancer shrinking in a measurable way more than double, and that's been pretty consistent in all the trials that have looked at it. It also has pretty consistently lengthened the time from when the treatment has started to when the cancer comes back, meaning when you need to switch to a different treatment. In one of the trials, it did show a significant improvement in overall survival. In, in another large trial, it did not, so that's slightly up to debate.
0: So these people had advanced lung cancer, Mm -hmm. but they lived longer in that one trial Mm -hmm. if they'd had bevacizumab plus chemotherapy. Correct. And that kind of led into this trial to look at it earlier, I guess.
1: Right. And also the philosophy of how does the drug work? Well, it's altering blood vessels. When you already have a big tumor, we know that the blood vessels are very abnormal and the bevacizumab can change those blood vessels and perhaps improve the amount of chemotherapy that's going into them. On the other side, if you're dealing with micrometastatic disease after a surgery, say, we can't see any cancer. We think we've cured the patient, but we know the cancer can come back in a lot of people. Why does that happen? It's because there are a few cells scattered here and there, what we call micrometastatic. We can't see it. It's microscopic, but it's there. In order for those little microscopic areas to grow into larger tumors, they need to pull in blood vessels. And so the hope would be that the bevacizumab could stop that from happening, and allow other mechanisms within the body to take care of those metastases that are there. Now,
0: bevacizumab is a very different kind of agent compared to chemotherapy. It's actually an antibody. I mean, we think about other antibodies people may have heard about. They might have heard about trastuzumab or Herceptin in breast cancer, rituximab in the lymphomas. So this works a little bit differently. Can you talk a little bit more about exactly what it does?
1: Sure. So what it's binding is a protein called vascular endothelial growth factor, also called VEGF. And VEGF is really the most important ligand, meaning protein that's out in circulation, that helps drive formation of blood vessels and also the proper formation of those blood vessels. And so if you can knock down the levels of VEGF, you can really reduce the blood vessel formation that's going on throughout the body. Some of the side effects that we see with the drug relate to that. So we actually, because it's altering blood vessels, we see high blood pressure. Hypertension is one of the side effects. And it also is affecting the blood vessels within the kidneys. And so we see some changes such as protein in the urine.
0: Do you see high blood pressure and protein in the urine in everybody who gets the drug?
1: No, not in everybody. But as time goes on in a reasonable percentage now in the colon trial, When they looked at significant protein in the urine after one year, it was less than 3%. Blood pressure issues were in about 12% of patients who were getting the drug for a prolonged period of time, as opposed to somewhere under 5% for those not getting the drug.
0: So when people have their blood pressure go up, how much of a problem is it?
1: It's manageable. I give the drug a lot, obviously, for my patients with metastatic disease. It's an approved drug, which is pretty active. I've had a few patients need to be on three, even one of them on four blood pressure medications, but I've never had to stop the drug just because of the blood pressure. We're usually able to control it, but it is something to be aware of.
0: What about nosebleeds?
1: That is also an issue. Again, it's almost always something that can be controlled. I have sent patients to the ENT physicians who can look for the area that's bleeding and do a simple outpatient procedure to stop it. Also, a lot of the times it relates to having a very dry nose, and so patients are able to start doing nose sprays to keep that under control.
0: Now, other things that maybe have been brought up in terms of this drug, one has been the question of whether or not there's an increased risk of having either a heart attack or a blood clot or some kind of process like that. In this situation, how much of a risk, if any, is that?
1: I think it is a risk, how much is difficult to say. In the lung cancer trials that have been done, the risk of having what we call an arterial thrombotic event, which would be a heart attack or a stroke, most of the trials weren't that much higher, but in other disease types it has been seen, and I think it is something we need to be aware of. In the colon cancer trial that was just reported on, that was also in this patient population where they don't have any known cancer, they're trying to keep it from coming back, The risks were not that high, but they weren't zero either. I mean, most of them, I think it's going to be less than a 1% difference, but it is something we'll need to watch and pay careful attention to.
0: I guess in some situations, people have speculated it might even be more, you know, 5% or even more in people who've had prior heart attacks, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem like those kinds of numbers have shifted the equation away from at least trying it in this situation.
1: And I wanted to just add, we're being pretty careful about that. We don't allow anyone who's had a stroke or a mini-stroke to go on the adjuvant bevacizumab trial with lung cancer, and anyone with cardiac heart problems can't go on if they've had any active problems within the last six months.
0: So in this trial, the patients are going to get chemotherapy, but half of them will also get the bevacizumab, and that continues after they stop the chemotherapy. Correct. So they get it how often and for how long?
1: It's once every three weeks up to a total of one year counting from the day that they get their first dose of chemotherapy.
0: And how do you find people feel once the chemo stopped in terms of what the impact is on how they feel when they receive these injections every three weeks?
1: Bevacizumab by itself is very, very well tolerated. I have a lot of patients on it, again, with metastatic disease. And energy goes up. The blood counts all return to normal. hair starts to regrow if there was loss. There's no nausea or vomiting. It's really not something people are aware of at all. Other than if they end up with blood pressure problems or the protein in the urine. And those are things we can watch and take care of. So it's not a significant lifestyle impactor, other than you do have to keep coming in once every three weeks for a short infusion.
0: How long is the infusion usually?
1: The infusion's only 30 minutes. Right. So patients do have to get blood drawn. They won't have to see the doctor every time, it's actually going to be only every other time. But the infusion itself is 30 minutes.
0: So they have their blood counts checked on mm-hmm. occasion also. So they're looking at the possibility that they might receive it. Suppose somebody were say, well, why can't I just try it?
1: Well, I think we don't know that it's going to help. Um, the only way we can know if it's going to help is if we do the trials. We wouldn't have designed the trial if we didn't have strong hope that it was going to have an impact. But there are many trials in the past where we had lots of hope it was going to have an impact. And so it's really important to do the trial so we can know.
0: What's your experience been in terms of when people are interested in being in a study like this? Are they usually doing it to help future patients? Or, I mean, I guess in this situation, if the computer assigns them the receive bevacizumab, they're getting a therapy they wouldn't have gotten. And if it does turn out in a few years from now that we know it helped, they would have benefited. But what are people usually thinking when they consider
1: this? I think it's a little bit of both. I tried to ask people not to go into it with the idea completely that it's going to have an impact on them because I don't know. The real impact is going to be on future people with lung cancer and being able to tell them five years from now, hopefully, the bevacizumab is beneficial, or to be able to tell them that it isn't, but we know that, and that's because we did the study. And so, you know, that's a difficult thing, and each person is certainly going to go at it from a slightly different perspective. I think most people do have some hope that it is going to benefit them personally, and I certainly would hope that as well, but we just don't know. And so I do think that there is a component of altruism.
0: What about if the patient decides they want to go in the trial, that at some point along the line, they want to get out of it? Is that a problem?
1: No, no. Every clinical trial, patients have the choice to decide to stop participating at any time.
0: Now, also, patients have to sign what's called an informed consent, which is a paper document that goes through all the details, a lot of what you've talked about today. What's the reason for that?
1: It's to make sure that patients are fully aware of what the potential risks are. In the setting of a trial, we don't know what the potential benefit is. We can't promise any benefit in it. So it's very important to make sure patients understand what all of the potential risks are. And the only way to know that is to have it in writing, I know that when I have a discussion with a patient, particularly a long one, what I'm sure we covered is not always what they've heard. And so the point of having it in writing is so that patients can go back and refer to it, have time to really read and digest, and ask questions based on that.
0: And of course, even in the informed consent document, it reinforces the fact that it's totally up to the patient. They can receive therapy, the chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. as would be standard without being part of the trial, and that... It's really just totally up to them.